think we're not yet in a moment where we can see strong growth coming from GDP numbers in Brazil, but definitely it's a very positive macro environment right now. Oscar Di Cocelli is the co-founder and CEO of DXA Investments, a Brazilian private equity firm. He has been in this industry for over two decades, and I managed to catch up with Oscar from his offices in the US. I asked him for his views on the Brazilian investment landscape, the consumer market and e-commerce, along with the potential in logistics. Logistics in Brazil, just to give you an idea, it's about 12% of the GDP, so give or take about $240 billion. And his thoughts on economic sectors presenting future opportunities, including fintech and agtech. I think the fintech revolution has been a uh, phenomenal revolution for the country because, and this has been driven not just by technology, but also by very positive government regulation readjustments, let's say. So the first question I want to ask you, Oscar, really is to talk about the Brazilian business landscape and the general investment environment. Brazil's just coming out slowly from a recession, 2015-16 sort of uh, era, but the economy isn't exactly steaming along. So tell me how you see the business landscape and investment environment as it is today. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here on this podcast. Brazil has been coming from a process that really started in 1994 uh, when it started to control inflation and not really just this uh, recent history of leaving the recession 2015 to 16. Brazil was able to start in 1994 a uh, economic policy that has been followed by governments from right wing and left wing. And they, it brought the country to the situation where it is today, which is a very positive and stable uh, economic background with a very low interest rate and low inflation. But that said, Brazil is a country that still has a lot of structural changes to be done. And that's probably the main reason why we are not seeing a very strong growth uh, in these last years. Fortunately, this new government is working to uh, get such uh, structural changes approved. The most important of them right now is a social security reform, which is in its track, on its track to get approved. Mm -hmm. And this uh, social security reform, it's uh, probably going to be the biggest fiscal uh, restructuring that Brazil has lived in its uh, modern economy. So I think we're not yet in a moment where we can see strong growth coming from GDP numbers in Brazil, but definitely it's a very positive macro environment right now. Why do you think this, because we're talking here about the pension reform, uh, I believe, why do you think this has taken so long and what's been holding it up? Probably that's one of the most difficult uh, structural changes that a country can go through, right? Because from a, a political standpoint, for you to change what people are going to receive in their retirement uh, years and some of these laws, they need a very strong number of congressmen and, and senators to vote. So you need to have a, a ideal political moment where politicians are able to vote in a vast majority in a very unpopular uh, measure. 
So I think that's probably the biggest uh, reason why it, it wasn't able to be done before. So with this new uh, government, the, the Bolsonaro government, in the beginning of this year, they came with uh, this uh, view that this is the the biggest uh, needed uh, reform that the country has to be able to uh, deliver. So I think that's probably the main reason why we were able to do it right now. And so given that um, this is likely to move through, how do you view the economic outlook then and the investment outlook for Brazil in the next two to three years? I think we will see interesting uh, capital movements into the country. What we have seen in these last, uh, I'd say, to almost 12 months now has been a lot of local Brazilians buying the stock exchange. We've seen a very strong uh, price appreciation for the stocks, but predominantly has been uh, local money. We haven't seen positive FDI flows yet. So I believe that once this uh, reform is uh, finally done, we will start to see dramatic uh, moves of capital from international flows into the country. So I think we're waiting to see the reform actually getting approved, not just the promise of it. Sure. And I want to speak specifically about foreign investment uh, shortly, but just before I do, just to touch on a point you mentioned there about uh, local money Brazilians buying into the stock exchange. Generally speaking, are Brazilians uh, shareholders? Yes, generally speaking, they're Brazilian shareholders, yes. Brazil is one of the countries that has of its lowest uh, savings percentage. So we're coming from a very low base uh, when you think about savings in the country. So it's not historically uh, a reality, but it's starting to become more and more. And part of the the price appreciation has this whole new flow of uh, investors that had never held a stock before that are now investing into it. The low interest rates environment that Brazil is living right now, its lowest interest rates in history, is creating a momentum of local Brazilian investors uh, starting to maintain their savings into investments, into alternative investments. So although Brazil has not been historically a a country with a large percentage of savings, it's starting to grow more and more. When you look in regards to the fund industry, locally, the fund industry, mutual funds, hedge funds in Brazil, talking about a $1 trillion industry. So there's a lot of capital already allocated to funds and to investments, uh, alternatives, but there's a lot more that needs to come in through savings. Before we go on to other topics, I'd like to just continue on talking about uh, the consumer class in Brazil. Is there a growing sort of consumer class in Brazil, a growing middle class? Can you sort of describe that a little bit to me? Uh, definitely, yes. Brazil's uh, middle class uh, growth follows the same process as we've seen in other emerging market countries with the lower class individuals starting to be able to acquire products they've never acquired before. And it really, Brazil's largest growth of the middle class was from 2005, 2006, all the way to 2012, 13, where we had a very big percentage of the population emerging. So to 
today, uh, uh, middle class is about 55% of the population, which is a, uh, a big mass of people. We're talking about more than 110, 120 million people. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing now is a process of them developing their consumer taste, as if we, if we might say. So instead of just acquiring the basic, straightforward, uh, in the beginning, food-related uh, consumer products such as TVs and electronics. Now they're evolving towards using more credit cards, using smartphones, using e-commerce. So we're seeing uh, growth in these sectors in spite of the recession. So e-commerce growth, for instance, has been double digit since 2010. So even during 2014, 2015, and 2016 were very difficult uh, economic uh, uh, years, we saw e-commerce with double digit growth. So I think there are some pockets of opportunities that are definitely related to this new consumer taste and these consumer patterns. E-commerce is an interesting one because Amazon is now um, present in Brazil, but there are a couple of big local uh, e-commerce giants there. Can you tell us a little bit about the competitive nature of the industry there? Yeah, it's a great topic because it's not just very interesting, but it's also a great investment opportunity sector. So Amazon is indeed uh, present in Brazil as a firm trying to increase. They've just launched their prime now, but uh, still something that's very uh, shy. And the biggest reason why we've seen cases of companies like, uh, you have two, two great examples, companies like uh, Netshoes and companies uh, like uh, Magazine Luisa, where you've seen one being completely hit on a negative standpoint for its logistics inability, and therefore the whole stock has dropped 80-90% since IPO. Right. Uh, and While the other one, Magazine Luisa, has been able to use their physical stores as an ideal uh, logistics framework to create a marketplace, and its stocks has grown dramatically also. So we have two very uh, interesting cases um, that show that the biggest component of e-commerce on a large scale in Brazil will be your ability to resolve the logistics issues. Brazil is a country that has less than 14% of the roads are paved. So if you want to do a national uh, uh, solution, it needs to have logistics uh, embedded into such solution. Transport infrastructure in Brazil. And Brazil doesn't have natural waterways for shipping goods. Um, It doesn't have a a rail network. So a lot of it relies on trucks to get around the country. Uh, I know that DXA invested in a, a company called Modern Logistics. Perhaps you could talk to me about the nature of logistics infrastructure in Brazil and what meaningful developments or transitions are taking place. How is technology being used or how should it be used to disrupt the sector? Yes, it's a great uh, point. Um, Brazil uh, consumer trends and patterns is not very different than what we've seen in other countries around the world. So what we will see is, uh, and I, I sometimes I make fun, I say it's like we have a crystal ball because we can see what happened in the U.S., what happened in other countries, and that's going to happen there also. Uh, but when we look uh, in regards to the infrastructure available in order to allow a straightforward only pure technology disruption 
the infrastructure simply is not there. So when we look at cases like Alibaba in China or even Amazon in the U.S., both of them used the infrastructure that already existed, either through U.S. Postal Service or through the Chinese government's uh, uh, infrastructure uh, investments. And they were able to create solutions that were based on technology, but they were leveraging off an infrastructure that existed. That's not the case in Brazil. There's infrastructure in the southeast, but in the middle of the country and in the northeast, it's simply not connected. As I mentioned, there's less than 14% of the roads are paved. And the, the, the situation that we live today is that while when we discuss about long-haul trucking in the U.S., we're talking roughly about 100 miles, it's long-haul trucking. Uh, in Brazil, we're talking about 10,000 uh, kilometers. So what we see is a situation of a country that's very heavily dependent on trucking. And there's more than uh, 3 million different uh, trucking companies that can be from mom and pop shops that have like one truck or two trucks to larger uh, structures, larger companies that have thousands of trucks. So what we do see is that the solution in order to be able to have a true national uh, resolution or national solution for, for logistics, it needs to be private because it's going to take decades and decades for the government to be able to invest to create the roads or, or the waterways or the railroads needed in order for someone like a Alibaba, Amazon or another big player. The lack of infrastructure from a public standpoint, from a government uh, supplied uh, standpoint, made us view that the solution needed to be private. So we met in 2014, um, Gerald Lee was the founder of Modern Logistics. And this uh, CEO, he was originally from uh, JetBlue, went down to Brazil to start Azul Airlines, which is a very successful passenger airline. And when um, he saw this same opportunity set, the same uh, lack of infrastructure, uh, he saw that the solution for logistics needed to be a one-stop shop firm that could offer from warehouse to trucking, but that it owned its own airline. Because if you own your own airline, you're able to structure uh, specific solutions for a client's needs that you can't do that by just using uh, the empty space on the belly of the of a passenger airline plane. So what he decided to do was to create modern logistics uh, in the same situation similar to a Blue Dart in India or a YTO or even in the, in the US, uh, FedEx, uh, supply chain solutions. So the idea was that through servicing large industrial clients that are already shifting uh, uh, products all across the country. Logistics in, in Brazil, just to give you an idea, it's about 12% of the GDP, so give or take about $240 billion. So it's a very big market. Oh, right. So the idea was that once you uh, start tapping with these large industrial clients to create a X for the country, then 
then you would be able to create on top of that marketplaces and in essence uh, cut the middleman that exists in so many different sectors because of this lack of infrastructure. And that's what happened with Model Logistics. We invested in the company uh, almost four years ago. And uh, since then, they started to offer their products. They started flying. They started to shift products. They Today, um, their reach is a reach that allows to be delivered to about 4,500 cities in the country. So we're talking about roughly 99% of the country that is their current reach. And uh, they have uh, solutions that now go around the whole country. So what we see as a opportunity set in the country is being able to offer uh, solutions that they won't be very similar or, or just like what happened in the international cases, because it will be dependent on what kind of infrastructure currently exists. So yes, we do believe Amazon Prime is the future, just like as we see it uh, in the U.S., but it needs to have a very strong logistics solution. And that logistics solution won't be of simply relying on what the government has made because, unfortunately, the country doesn't have a public infrastructure solution. So I think that's how we see the opportunity set. We, there, are different, there are definitely cases of last-mile solutions of companies being worth billions, uh, more than a billion dollars nowadays. And uh, we think that there's... This is probably one of the biggest opportunities that we could ever see in uh, this decade. Something DXA talks about is a significant capital reallocation to South America. Can you explain what you mean by that? And of course, what sectors you think are looking positive over the next uh, three to five years? The world is uh, living right now a very interesting moment of having uh, more than uh, $15 trillion allocated to negative yield bonds, right? So we're living a very, in a way, risky moment, but also a uh, moment that's uh, pre-capital uh, reallocation, in, in my view. When we see the impacts of the 2008 crisis, we've seen a big inflow of capital towards China and towards larger GDP uh, growth number emerging markets. And we've seen, we've seen that in a big allocation from global mutual funds, fixed income mutual funds, uh, equity mutual funds. And these funds, they will continue to have a mandate of allocating towards uh, global markets. But when we see the percentage that most of these funds have towards uh, LATAM is less than 2%. And LATAM is almost 10% of the global GDP. So that big gap between the representation of a global economy versus the representation into uh, major global allocators, we think that that's going to change. And we think that this is going to change towards LATAM, where we're, we think that we will see more and more a outflow of capital from Asia and, and, and China going towards more normal levels of allocation there, and that money is going to be driven more towards LATAM. Which sectors we will see? And I think we, we, we are seeing definitely a surge for sectors that are more resilient, and we're talking about food-related, and that can be agriculture, that can be consumer food-related uh, type of companies. Mm -hmm. uh, we are seeing also a strong uh, flow or interest towards healthcare. 
uh, we see through, through our financial solutions. And when we see opportunities in, in Latin America, and uh, definitely it's true for Brazil, but it's true for other countries in Latin America also, the lack of basic uh, solutions that now we see in uh, the developed world in the financial side, in the health side, in the food side, we think that that's going to drive a lot of the allocation. Brazil, uh, uh, just to give you an idea, today is the second largest food exporter in the world, and the UN's FAO expects to become the number one in a couple of years because there's still a lot of arable land not taking account into the Amazon, just simply kind of a arable land that can be used. And we think that that's going to drive a lot of the capital inflows into the country uh, in, in, in this sector. So you mentioned a couple of uh, sectors there, which I, I really want to dig into a little bit uh, from the perspective of technology, fintech and ag tech. What movements do you see happening in those particular sectors in Brazil? And what is the future for those two specifically in Brazil? I think the fintech uh, revolution has been a uh, phenomenal revolution for the country because, and this has been driven not just by technology, but also by very positive government regulation readjustments, let's say. Uh, the government has allowed uh, for institutions, that non-banking institutions, to operate as banks. And this is a, a process that now, if you and I want to open a fintech, it's a very straightforward, easy process. And what I believe is that we will see lots and lots of solutions that are fintech-related, either through credit or through uh, new banking solutions or uh, through credit uh, cards, we will see this happen all across the different sectors in the consumer space also. So we might see retailers having more of their uh, fintechs, uh, their internal fintechs, and there's a lot of white label fintech solutions uh, in the country nowadays. And I think this is uh, something that's only at the tip, only only at the start. Mm -hmm. We still have a very big percentage of the population that does not have a bank account. And I think those are going to be uh, more and more included into the national uh, economy. Mm -hmm. In regards to agriculture, I believe that Brazil is in a multi-decade trend that won't change. This is related to food security. The world needs to produce more proteins. There is a multiplier effect over grains. Every kilo of beef uh, takes up 10 to 12 kilos of grains. Every kilo of poultry takes five to seven kilos of grains. When we look uh, related to few that use, uh, in the, for instance, in the U.S., uh, it uses corn-based. So there's also a demand for biofuels that are using uh, grains for that. So what we will see is more and more is the growth of production of grains. And Brazil is uh, probably still the number one ideal place for you to do agriculture in large scale. Uh, there's a lot of availability of land. There's already infrastructure there. All the major global players are ready in the country. So you're able to take the products uh, internationally. Land price is very uh, affordable still. So I think we will see agriculture still kind of a pushing Brazil towards this uh, larger position in the world. We've seen some projections. There's an interesting projection from Price Waterhouse that shows that Brazil is going to be the 
the fifth uh, largest country from a GDP standpoint in a couple of decades. And most of that is driven by this agriculture tsunami that uh, mm -hmm. Brazil is able to bring to the world. Brazil has historically been known as quite a protectionist country. Can you speak to the nature of Brazil's international trade? And the particular trade partner that I, I want to highlight is, of, of course, China. Can you speak to the nature of that relationship? Of course, uh, Brazil and China. China is Brazil's largest trade partner. And China's demand for, um, let's say, agricultural products and food-related, uh, this won't change. China has changed from a manufacturing uh, economy to a consumption economy, and that, had, that has affected a lot of its relationships with countries that uh, are providers of uh, manufactured goods or, or, or that demand their manufactured goods. And I think this is in the core of the issues related between China and the U.S., uh, current uh, trade tensions. But when we look related to Brazil, the demand for grains, uh, oil, uh, iron ore, these kind of demands, they are a multi-decade uh, type of trends that won't just simply change right now. So China has a need for what Brazil uh, has to offer and in a way for what South America in, in general has to offer, mm -hmm. uh, especially while you don't have a lot of infrastructure going on in Africa, for instance, that would allow Africa to be a big provider of natural goods to the world. So South America will continue to be that way. What we see between China and Brazil is um, a relationship relationship that had its ups and downs, uh, especially when we see around land ownership, uh, rules that changed in Brazil, that now a foreigner can no longer own land in the country. We've seen some changes around tariffs uh, for some of the imported goods. You're right. However, I do believe that Brazil's reaction is quite aligned with what we see in the U.S. or we see in Europe related to some of these agricultural tariffs. And I think we will see, uh, especially this new government, which is uh, it's uh, intentionally wanting to be closer and closer to the U.S., I believe that this is going to drive a more positive relationship in the agricultural space also. So, Oscar, I'd like to ask you a little more granular about investing in uh, Brazil. And the key issue I want to speak about here is compliance and due diligence, particularly from the perspective of foreign investors coming into Brazil. So, I mean, when you're making investments in Brazil or, or other countries in Latin America where you're, where you're operating, can you speak about the conducting due diligence, what it involves from your perspective, why it's important, and perhaps what aspects are most critical in terms of your investment decision making? Uh, it's a great point. Uh, I think uh, it's interesting to view that Brazil, although is the eighth largest GDP country in the world, when we look uh, related to doing business lists and rankings, Brazil is uh, very, very bad on those rankings. Uh, it's a very hostile market. Uh, that's not very different to other South American countries also. And what does that mean? It means that there's a, a built-in bureaucracy that has made the doing business locally uh, very hostile to foreigners where you need to be 
always looking behind your shoulder uh, related mm -hmm. to who are the service providers that you're using for a certain activity. It could be as simple as a legal document notarization, or it can be a very strong uh, financial due diligence. So uh, what I see is that you cannot navigate uh, the investment landscape unless you have a true local uh, partner or a true local experience with feet on the ground that knows how to uh, operate that. And I think for that matter, there are uh, company and management uh, companies, managers like ourselves that have been specialized on helping international investors to come into the region. So we are born and raised, we live there, we have a whole team, we know the difficulties and we know the challenges that need to be uh, addressed. And this is something that's a structural bureaucracy and structural uh, issues that were built over the last uh, decades and decades. And we're not talking about anything related to corruption. Oh, you need to know who's this guy or that. No, that's not it. Mm -hmm. It's really knowing the tax infrastructure. It's knowing the process to open a company, the process to close a company, uh, mm -hmm. the labor laws which are different in, in each one of the regions. So I believe that a international investor needs to have that kind of a very thorough due diligence and using local partners. We see also uh, a very big differentiation between managers, well, at least fund managers, that are catering towards international investors and fund managers are catering, catering towards local investors. They tend to have a very different compliance uh, structure. Our case, for instance, we follow U.S. SEC regulation to uh, make sure that we have uh, U.S. Uh, level standards of uh, compliance and structure, while a lot of our let's say, uh, local competitors that simply focus on local Brazilian money, they don't need to have any kind of a SEC oversight. So I think this is something that for an, a general investor needs to look uh, it with more detail. What are some of the critical pitfalls or obstacles that you would advise foreign investors to be aware of coming into Brazil? I think the first obstacle is the legal framework around ownership. It is very common for us to see documentation and see uh, structures that uh, were built in a way that didn't really provide to the foreign investor a true strong ownership that could be uh, even executed in a case of a legal fight with uh, whoever your local target company is. I think we've seen a lot of that happening. Also, I do believe that the framework of understanding where in specific regions, either if it's in Brazil or in Colombia or in other South American countries, which specific regions have the best uh, or, or the worst tax impacts. That there's uh, dramatic changes if you put your business uh, either headquarters or investing through uh, a specific uh, state. And then when you're doing such investments, it's a really small handful of people or companies that have that level of expertise to understand which is the best path to do. So I think the two biggest hurdles are the tax impacts on your investments and ownership impacts when you're when, when you're doing that. If you get that clear 
cleared, I think the international investor will be a lot more protected. Fortunately, specifically, and this is more specifically towards uh, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, government has never changed any law that affected uh, a past uh, ownership. So the last time we've seen uh, a company being nationalized in these countries has been a long, long time. The case of Brazil, we've, we have never had. Mm-hmm. So I think this is also something that's very important to understand. Sometimes certain countries, you take like Venezuela, for instance, has gone through that very recently, uh, where you are an investor, you are an owner, but then the government simply kind of takes a hold of your assets. So that brings me sort of my last two questions, Oscar, and that's I want to ask you about the culture in Brazil and, uh, you know, about the business culture in Brazil. Perhaps you can talk to me a bit about what it means to deal with Brazilians in Brazil and to invest in Brazil and to do business there. And then lastly, if you can tie in perhaps uh, why Brazil um, of all the uh, emerging markets around the world where one could invest or do business, why Brazil? The culture of investing in Brazil is uh, very interesting. At the same time that most of the businessmen in Brazil and women, they have a very, uh, let's say, positive capitalist mindset. There are certain uh, cultural structures that were used in the past to reduce their costs that uh, are quite complicated. So especially when we talk about uh, labor laws and labor structures, we find a lot of companies that still don't pay their employees on the uh, in accordance to the law and believe that that's very much a reality and true and that they shouldn't change that. Also, we see a, a very strong lack of interest on creating diversity in their businesses. We see a very strong lack of ESG standards. So what we try to do really is to, as a firm, is to bring this international mindset and standards, global standards, to uh, these local businesses. So we, we, we look at uh, environmental, social governance, impact-related type of measures. We looked at uh, diversity into these businesses to try to increase or increment to their culture this uh, uh, international mindset. But uh, it's uh, Brazilians and um, South Americans in, in general, very hardworking, and we see uh, a lot of creativity in these businesses and in these entrepreneurs. And I think it's an amazing environment to invest in. So why Brazil? And uh, maybe the best question is why Brazil now, right? We are living a moment globally that we've seen a lot of capital flow towards Asia. Uh, and now we're seeing a situation in Asia of a slower in their growth pace. We see uh, Europe in a very uh, sluggish growth uh, stage and with lots and lots of either fiscal issues and political issues of being able to negotiate situations like Brexit. We see in, the, in Africa a great opportunity, but still it's not a stable political and economic uh, region. Uh, maybe uh, less than 10% of the region is uh, in, a, in a stable stable situation. 
Right. But then when we look in regards to South America, of course, we have uh, very unstable situations like uh, uh, Argentina, Venezuela. But we have countries that have done their homeworks in these last 10 years and countries like uh, Colombia, countries like Brazil, for instance, which is more than 80 percent of the GDP in the region that have done a very strong political and economic uh, homework in these last uh, 10 to 15 years. And now what we see is a very uh, stable environment for investments. It's, uh, so you take Brazil, for instance, in my opinion, the, the number one opportunity set right now uh, country is a country that has lowest interest rates in history, lowest inflation in history, anchored inflation expectations. We've gone through a labor a reform that reduced the risk for investors. Uh, we are going through the social security reform, which now is in its final phases of approval. And then what we're going to see now is a government that's very pro-market, creating situations where bureaucracy is going down, and it's allowing to have uh, investments in a very structural, uh, low-risk type of sectors, like agriculture, but also energy distribution. And we're seeing uh, a, a potential growth for the country in the next in the years to come. I don't see it as a country as that's going to grow five, six percent per year, but it's a country that will grow in this two to four percent range in this next 10 to 15 years, that it's a, a very great environment for investors to come into the country in this stage. Once again, that was Oscar Dicotelli, the co-founder and CEO of DXA Investments in Brazil. And I would like to thank Oscar for sharing his insights with us today. And thanks to you for listening. The Emerging Markets Podcast is produced by Peacod Advisory Group. 